what is off the groove? It means you've blown the line or you're pushing the limits a little bit too far or just maybe you might be looking for a faster way around the racetrack. Off the Groove with Scotty Dubler. It's finally here, a seven-day stretch of flat track racing for me. It all gets started tonight at the All-Star National Flat Track Series in Savannah, Georgia. First five days working for Steve Nace. We got four half miles in a row and then a short track on Tuesday. I got a media day down at the headquarters of AFT on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, the AFT season starts with the Daytona TT. Over the past two months, we've talked to several people in the flat track community. With this being the last episode before the start of the 2018 AFT season, I thought it'd be a good idea to check in with AFT. I wasted no time and went straight to the top, reaching out to Michael Locke, the CEO of American Flat Track. My request was answered immediately. Hello? Hello. Hey, Scotty. Hey, Mr. Locke, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good, how are you? I am great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Off the Groove. Uh, I saw you a couple weeks ago up at Flat Out Friday in Milwaukee, and uh, we didn't have much time to, to catch up as you were busy and I was busy. Did you enjoy that event? I'll let you into a secret. I, w- I really wasn't that busy at all. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those rare occasions where I was mostly off duty. Just get doing the most valuable thing you can ever do is wander around and experience somebody else's show. Um you know, you learn stuff, you get stimulated by this, you make an observation, you get a chance to catch up with people without there being an agenda to the conversation. So actually, yeah, it was really helpful for me. It was a lot of fun for myself, but I was really busy, so I didn't see you, you until after the, yeah. yeah, I didn't see you until after the races. Did you did you enjoy the racing? Did you have you been to a concrete race before? Yeah, it, it was my it was my second time going to Flat Out Friday. Um and I was interested in observing the evolution of it between last year and this year. Uh, last year was definitely more chaotic. Um, uh, this year was definitely better organized, which you would expect in the light of experience. Um, but I have to say the, quest, the question in my mind about races like uh, Flat Out Friday, which is an awesome, awesome evening, very enjoyable, is... What's the line between entertainment and racing? What's the line between amateur and pro? And I find myself asking that because we have to ask in our own series. I mean, we are the pro series, but we have some non-pro elements in there. And sometimes they mix with the pro game like oil and water. And I found myself at at Flat Out Friday thinking, hmm, as you scale this and it gets bigger, this is going to become more difficult for you to be able to put your arms around uh, 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 not only an amateur level of competition, but also an amateur mindset versus a pro mindset. Uh, and the, and the pros are becoming more and more pro. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There was, there was a lot of entertainment going on. That's for sure. I liked, uh, how they covered everything on Facebook. It was, it was a, yep. a great night, but it was, it was a, it was a long day, but it, everything <laughs> happened so fast, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, the, look, the only thing that left me completely bamboozled from the whole evening was when uh was when the the evil Knievel types took on the mad max types and and you know it might have been more entertaining if somebody had actually been killed <laughs> well I, I thought somebody was i don't know they drugged somebody off the track i, it, I don't it, know i was lost it, too i yeah I, I i i have to admit to thinking i wonder if they planned it to be like this yeah, I'm not sure. I, I sat in part of the production meeting for that, but uh-huh. as, I, as I was watching it unfolded, it, it seemed a little bit different than what I heard earlier in the day. So yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was entertaining, that's for sure. Uh, it did give myself a, a chance to step up and, and take a little break, you know, because yeah. otherwise I didn't have a, a single break in the action. But it was a lot of, a lot of fun. So uh, before we find out more about what you've been doing in the offseason, let's get to know Michael Locke a little bit more. Uh First off, where were you born? You have a you, you don't talk like us. No, I'm from New York City. <laughs> <laughs> you know, once somebody asked me that question, and I hesitated in answering, and they said, "Are you from New York City?" Um, but no, I'm wow. not from I'm not from New York City. I'm actually from London, England. Although I've been in the U.S. a long time, um, really uh, on and off, but mostly on since about. Uh, 94. Uh, but yeah, originally from London, England. 
I got you. So how how did you get involved in in start liking motorcycles? I I read the Cycle News article that we're going to put a link to the article uh, in our in our notes here, but uh, a great article about you. But how did you get involved in motorcycles? Well, it was a couple of things. I mean, one, I was looking for a really good opportunity to piss off my parents. Um, <laughs> and uh, and there's not much better than motorcycles, is there, for that? Um, That's but perfect. Actually, but, but in all seriousness, I had a cousin of mine um, who I really looked up to. She was about, I don't know, six, eight years older than me. She was the cool person in the family. And she got married to a guy who ran the local motorcycle club. Uh, a very famous club in Southeast England. And he was the dude who ran it. And they invited me to all the club stuff and to hang out with bikes. I was, you know, 14, 15. And this was a life that I could definitely see myself enjoying. And I, I uh, first uh, motorcycle club meeting I went to, one of the guys there said, hey, you ever been out on the back of a really big bike? Uh, no, was the answer. He had a Motor Guzzi Le Mans Mark II which is still one of the most beautiful motorcycles ever made and certainly one of the nicest sounding. And he said, hey, jump on the back. I'll take you out for a spin. Oh, those are such famous last words. So, <laughs> so little did I know that this, this guy, his name was Lee, he was the only really certified psychopath in the whole motorcycle club. And he took me out for a spin that included three-digit speeds in a kind of semi-suburban area in southeast London. We picked up a police tail at one point and lost them in less than 60 seconds wow. uh, and arrived back at the uh, parking lot at the pub where the where the group met. Uh, and he parked up and I couldn't get off the back. I mean, I was frozen. Frozen. I was, <laughs> I was frozen half in fear and half in excitement. I couldn't get off. And people are embarrassingly people had to come over and help me get off the bike because I couldn't actually move. So really, it was all kind of downhill from there on. Did, did you have a smile on your face? No, I wouldn't call it a smile. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So what was your first motorcycle that you owned? Um, well, back in England when I was a kid, you could, um, you could get a bike when you were 16, although it was a kind of technicality of the law. It had to be called a moped. Well, moped doesn't sound that cool, does it? So uh, no. typically the Japanese motorcycle manufacturers found a way around this. So they made mini race replicas that were mopeds because technically you could propel this motorcycle with pedals. But the pedals were locked and the bike looked like a stripped down, a stripped down version of, uh, of a road race bike. So I had a Yamaha Fizzy, uh, which is actually FS1-E is the model number. And they all called Fizzies. And it looked wow. like something Kenny Roberts would have raced if he'd, uh, if he'd just crashed and the fairing had fallen off. So, so I had a Yamaha Fizzy when I was 16. It was a 50cc two-stroke single, eminently tunable, uh, and, and you know to make a lot more a lot more noise and a lot less power. Generally speaking, was the tune. Um, <laughs> and uh, I put clip-ons on and uh, modified the seat and did all that good stuff. And used to tear around Cambridge in England, where I went to school, with all my other 16-year-old buddies. So it pretty much looked like a cafe racer. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly okay. what it looked like. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. So I've had the pleasure of working with you for uh, the last couple of years behind the scenes and, and have watched you and you're in a, a very impactful leader. Is there a specific moment in your life when you realized that you had the ability to lead? Um, you know, it's funny. I grew up um, and, and my father was a politician in England. Um, uh, on and off. He was sometimes a politician and he was sometimes a university lecturer. And this is, uh, you know, I grew up admiring my, my dad very much. And he was someone who had the skill set to be able to uh, capture a room's attention by telling a story. Um, and he always told me when I was a kid that if you ever want to achieve anything in life, don't try and do it yourself. Recruit an army to do it. Um, and uh, and so I, I followed him around a lot when I was a kid, and he was a very intelligent, very articulate man, and he had high energy, and uh, and he had passions for things. And people follow people who are passionate and genuine. Um, and and I think that um, if I think about my time uh, here at uh, AFT, 
and before it AMA Pro Flat Track. I always knew the product was awesome. The people were awesome. Okay, well, if you haven't got those two things, you're kind of screwed. But if you have got those two things, if you're the leader, your job is just to is just to clean the road ahead and show everybody the direction and get them to do it. Um, and that that's been my that's been my philosophy. Every now and then you need to make an intervention, and you need to say, you know what, you all hate this idea, but we're going to do it anyway, and you're going to like it once it's done. Every now and then you do that. <laughs> And, and we've had a couple of examples of that, I guess. I, I would say so for sure. So let's talk about how you got joined up and started working. You said it was AMA Pro Racing, and now it's it's currently uh, AFT. We'll get into that in just a moment. But how did your relationship start, and when did you join AMA Pro Racing? Well, um, I had worked uh, pr- prior to being um, down here in sunny Florida. I'd worked uh, for 10 years running Ducati North America out of uh, Cupertino, California. And then I moved east uh, and ran Lamborghini Americas, um, which was uh, in Herndon, Virginia, just outside of D.C. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and, and frankly, had a pretty miserable time in the car business. The, the product's cool, but it's not like motorcycling otherwise. Um, and I, I left that after a couple of years and um, established a consulting business uh, to try and help European brands that want to break into America and American brands that want to break into into Europe in understanding the pitfalls and the culture and so on. And I I ran this for about a year or so and was involved in some acquisition deals and, uh, uh, and consulting. And one day I got a call from Jim France, who is somebody I've known ever since I came to the U.S. Um, and helped me... Uh, a number of times understand things in the US when I was at Triumph and when I was at Ducati. Jim was always a very sage uh, and uh, uh, helpful advisor. And he called me and he said, look, we're um, we're separating some of our assets because Jim France owns AMA Pro Racing. Um, and we're separating some of the assets. Road racing's going this way. Motocross and Supercross are going that way. Um, uh, we're looking at flat track under the microscope, and I'd, I'd love to plot a course of, uh, to the future where flat track can succeed. Um, would you like to come down to Daytona uh, for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, shadow my management team, and tell me what you think we ought to be doing? And I was delighted to be able to do that. Um, uh, and so I came down, and it's almost three years ago, actually. Um, it's just over three years ago from now, because it was in the run-up to bike week. And I came down and, and sat with all of the people here in uh, AMA Pro Racing and looked at the business and talked to racers and talked to team owners and journalists and formed a plan of what I thought would be um, uh, plotting a course of uh, success for the future. So that's what got me involved. Uh, Jim read the report and uh, asked me to do a presentation to the board of AMA Pro, which I did. And they liked the plan. In fact, they were very enthusiastic about uh, the plan. It was a a three-year fixed, five-year long-term plan um, of changes that we needed to make and opportunities we needed to capture. And uh, they liked it very much. And Jim asked me to come on board as um, a CEO uh, to to drive that change. So in 2015, you were just basically a consultant and you got to follow the management team around. What were your first impressions of the sport? (laughs) <laughs> okay, so the the first race I went to um, was the Daytona Short Track uh, during Bike Week, where if you cast your mind back, uh, we used to run two consecutive evenings on a short track uh, outside of Turn 1 at Daytona International Speedway. So my first impression was, why are we in the parking lot? Why, why when the Daytona 200 is inside the speedway, Supercross is inside the speedway, my God, even amateur motocross was inside the speedway. Even ATVs are inside the speedway. And we're out here in the parking lot with uh, with uh, rudimentary facilities, uh, capacity only for uh, about 3,000 people. Um, and it all feels very temporary and low budget. That was my first impression. Okay. I, second, I like that. My second impression, walking around the paddock that evening. And bear in mind, I'd only been to one flat track race in my life. 
the the one that almost anybody of my age has been to, which is the the Indianapolis evening when Kenny brought the TZ out. We were all there for MotoGP. I was with Ducati. And I'd only been to one race before. So this is my second race. And you know what? I was walking around the paddock thinking, I am so looking forward to seeing those XRs race. That is such a beautiful bike, a classic motorcycle. They sound great. They look great. And I walked around the paddock and I, I had real difficulty finding any. And I thought, <laughs> maybe, there's a, maybe there's another paddock where the cool bikes are. Because all I'm seeing is a whole bunch of stickered up dirt bikes here. This must be the junior class, but where's the senior class? And it was about a third of the way through the evening when I asked one of the officials, Al Luddington, um, uh, when, when are the big bikes coming out? And he just laughed and he turned around and he said, oh, you have a lot to learn. And so I was disappointed in going to my first flat track race and not seeing the prestige cool bikes. And in fact, the guys that I associated with those bikes all seemed to be wearing dirt bike gear and riding dirt bikes. I knew there was a problem. <laughs> I knew there was a problem in scaling this sport and that it had started just feeding on itself and had got smaller and smaller and made irrational things look rational. I like what you're saying. I like what you're seeing there. Uh, so then you started developing, you know, many changes in 2016 and 2017. There were a lot of changes, a lot of new, new venues showing up, the Daytona TT, uh, the Red Mile Buffalo Chip. Uh, there's some really cool moments in those first two years. You know, you see Brian Smith winning his first championship, a couple of first-time Twins winners. Uh, Jared Meese dominated the sport last year. And then the growth of our sport with, you know, TV coverage on NBCSN, fanschoice.tv, the attendance continues to grow at the racetracks, uh, the rebranding of AFT, all that in a very short period of time during your first two years. Yeah, I mean, it does. It does sound like a lot, doesn't it? Um, it, uh, it is. <laughs> uh, but in reality, um, all of those ideas, all of those changes, were envisaged and put into a strategy document within the first ninety days. There is nothing we have done in the intervening nearly three years that was not envisaged. And I'm a big believer in strategy. Uh, I know it's one of the most overused words in the English language and half people don't know what it means. But strategy just means taking your time to look at the situation that you're in today, imagining what the future looks like when it's good and drawing a line between the two and working out what the pinch points are, working out what the big battles are going to be, working out which are the battles you don't have to have. And, and we did all we did all of that thinking and arguing. Man, there was some arguing, arguing about what's the right way to go. And just because something was tried in 1979, that didn't work doesn't mean to say it's not valid today. Having all of those ah, discussions and uh, like I say, those arguments about what's right and what's wrong. We did that early on. And really, I don't want to say that the, the intervening. Uh, two and a half years has just been about execution. It hasn't. I mean, things have happened and you have to react and you learn more information. But basically, the the story, the narrative about what flat track could and should be was written at the beginning of this project. And the rest has been making it happen, sometimes by sheer determination, sometimes by the benevolence of others. And sometimes just because it absolutely made sense to do it that way and everybody had been doing it the other way for 40 years um, and that the dam bursts open. Um, and, we, and, and, you know, we're nowhere near done. I know I, sometimes when I say that, it frightens some of the more traditional people in the flat track community. They say, oh, my God, what's he going to do now? I, I don't mean for us to live in a constant state of revolution. OK, I know that's not good. Um, and we did effect a lot of fundamental changes in a very short period of time for two reasons. One, they needed to be done. And two, we didn't need it to be done as a normal way of life. We needed to have some shock and awe uh, and a vision into the future um, on some things right at the beginning and then refine, refine, refine as we go along. So there are there are going to be more changes in the future. I mean, there are things I know are going to happen that unfortunately I can't tell you about today because they're not ready for release, but they're all good. They're all exciting. They're all going to elevate the sport. In fact, some things that are going to happen in the next 60, 90 days are going to be game changers. 
And I, I try not to overuse the phrase game changer, but there are going to be some game changing things happen in our sport for the future in the next 90 days. Well, that is certainly exciting to hear for sure. Uh, you know, just some just some of those changes I talked about and some of the moments we've talked about. We had some great competition in, in 2017, you know, Indian versus Harley Davidson. Uh, the AFT singles class, the start of that, and the AFT twins class, we saw twins, like you said at the very start of this interview, on short tracks and on TTs, and it's been so many years ago since that happened. Did that do everything you expected, you know, switching the new classes and new class structure? Absolutely. I, w- I would say so, too. You said there's more rules and more changes coming up. Uh, we've talked to several riders. One of the things that they said that they would change possibly would be go back to the old format. Have you considered changing the format, or is that anything we can look forward to? The, the, the big change was to change the whole philosophy of the event format. And what, we want, what, what we'd observed was that the, um, the event grows to a climax. Any event should grow to a climax, whether it's a stage play or a movie or a sporting event. It needs to start low and end high. And the problem we had with the old format was that it started kind of middling, then it went down. And and the last chance qualifier, to people who are not diehard uh, flat track fans, was like, and I remember hearing people say this, hey, hold on, haven't we just watched that guy and didn't he come last in the last race? Why is he out there again? But people didn't understand why we should, why we should dominate the first half of the program with showing as, as much as possible the slow guys and as little as possible the fast guys. Because if you're going to grow an audience for the future, if we're going to make Jared and Brian and Sammy, if we're going to make them into coast-to-coast stars in America, and I'm I'm pretty determined we're going to do that because their level of athleticism, their level of skill is up there with any pro athletes in the country. I want to make them stars. I want them household names. It means I need to show them. I don't need them to do a quick six laps at the start of the evening that's really easy for them because they're the the stars of the field and then go and sit in their motorhome for the rest of the evening until the main event. That, That is not how we're going to scale the audience. So our action was to turn it into a tournament style, a knockout style. We certainly had some resistance and some criticism of that when we were conceiving it from from some of the riders, particularly the riders who liked sitting in their motorhome for most of the evening um, <laughs> uh, and wanted to earn maximum money and take minimum risk. I get it. Of course I get it. But I'm pretty sure that half those guys would turn up and take a $10,000 check just for waving to the crowd. Um, well, sure. But, that, but that's not the show. <laughs> the show isn't for the riders. The show is for the fans, by the riders. So um, the, the philosophy was to have a tournament-style knockout where every race counts, and that the guys who win the races event by event and the guys who win the championships really earned it. That was the, that was the philosophy, and that was the uh, thinking behind it. Some of the initial resistance was good that people didn't want to do that, and some of the subsequent resistance was that because we... We didn't have consistent rider counts across the country, and this is still a, uh, an issue that we're looking to solve within the sport, um, is that we have huge rider counts at some of the Midwestern very traditional events, and, we, and our, our participation thins out when we go further south and further west. Guys, that's a consequence of where the sports come from, not where the sport's going to. So we have to ride this out, and we have to find a way as the sanctioning body to standardize ride accounts. And we have lots of plans to do that long term, but they, they take a while. When only the top 25% of the participants are really making money and the rest of them are doing it because they love it uh, and are funding it themselves, there is obviously uh, uh, quite an inhibition to go to Calistoga, California, if you're in upstate New York, um, where you think, hmm, I might not even make the main. I get, I get all of that. So the problem we had with the, with the uh, format that we introduced for 17 was that it didn't adequately take into account the different ride accounts. I think we fixed that this year. And, and I, you know, I, I read all the comments on social media and I talk to fans in the grandstand and I talk to the team owners. So we'll see if we fixed it this year um, by the feedback we get. Have, have you or anybody else at AFT reached out to the riders that aren't showing up and, and asked if there's yes. particular reasons? 
we have done that. Uh, okay. And we are building some plans to address that. Uh, we're going to make an announcement after the Daytona TT about a new initiative we're taking to try and assist those very people. Awesome. That's great to hear. Let's uh, move on to the offseason. The Super Prestigio, I, I believe, was another success over there in Barcelona. This year, the event's moving to France. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, uh, obviously, the the idea of the Super Prestigio was a great idea. Um, uh, although I would say that in um, uh, in the last few years, it had become overly dependent uh, upon Marc Marquez. Mark is a, an astonishing all-round athlete and a superstar, but when an event is about one person and then four weeks before the event uh, goes out, he, he, he's unable to turn up, it's too much of a risk. So I see the future of the Super Prestigio, and I have discussed this um, with uh, I have discussed this with some of the people involved, is to try and move it much more towards a kind of team format. I love the old transatlantic match races. I grew up with those as a kid in road racing. And I'd like to be able to take more of our American athletes over to Europe and get them involved under the banner of a Team USA. I'd love to do that. And we've got so much talent here. And it was amazing traveling with uh, uh, with uh, JD and Briar last time. And Briar was wide-eyed everywhere he went in Barcelona. It was a real experience for the kid, not only on the track, but off the track as well, meeting those people and spreading the word about AFT. So I see a bright future for Super Prestigio if we're able to, um, if we're able to grow it and, uh, and turn it into a real, real motorcycle event. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, we've talked to several riders, you know, during, you know, and asked them what they've been doing since Paris, uh, California, the off season, you know, since the last race of the year. Uh, what has Michael Locke and AFT been doing this offseason? <laughs> well, I've spent most of my waking hours chasing down sponsorship deals and OEM partnership deals, because those you do in the offseason. Um, and you're going to see um, a big ramp up in uh, sponsorship of our series this year. In fact, you would have seen announcement after announcement go out for the last month. They're almost daily now of new partners we've got. We managed to secure over $2 million in contingency pledges for the first time in the history of American Flat Track, which is delivering on one of our promises. When I asked riders three years ago, uh, if there were two or three things you would want to change in the sport, what would they be? The only one that every single person said was get more money to the riders. Well, we've taken contingency from uh, 220,000 to 2 million in three years. Um, so we spent a lot of time on that. Um, and the third thing is, uh, as I said, um, chasing down OEMs for a commitment to uh, the sport. Um, you have already seen, I think, in 2017, uh, a game changer by Indian coming in. Uh, and you're going to see a couple more of them on the grid this year. Um, uh, you know, for years ago, the grid was dominated by uh, uh, one brand in Harley-Davidson. And then latterly, uh, it's been dominated by uh, Kawasaki's. This year, you may or may not think that it's dominated by Indians, but no, no one knows yet. So getting an OEM commitment, preferably several OEM commitments, will mean good competition. There are some things coming up in the next 6, 12 months that are going to be an absolute delight to every flat track fan. There is a bright future uh, in model and brand diversity. And in the off-season, I spend most of my time trying to tickle those tummies. Well, you, you brought up Indian Motorcycle, and they, they definitely dominated the 2017 season. Uh, a few other teams that maybe don't have the ability to have two FTR 750s. Uh, one rule I guess I would like to have explained a little bit more, and maybe this isn't you know, where you, your expertise is, but maybe Chris Carr's, but if you sign up to ride an Indian, you have to ride an Indian that entire night. So my question to you is if I have one Indian because they're a little bit pricey and if it breaks in practice or say my heat race, I'm done for the night. So is there a, a reason behind why you have to ride one particular oh, yeah, brand yeah. of motorcycle the entire night? Yeah. I don't need to pass you over to Chris Carr for that one. I can tell you all about that myself. Um, okay. We are in uh, we are in a, a very active mode in this sport at the moment of fan acquisition. 
Now, you could say, well, surely every sport is about fan acquisition, but that's actually not true. A lot of big, big sports are in fan retention. So you could say that baseball is in fan retention. Their idea is to keep the people who are already engaged in the sport continuing to engage. We're not in that at all. We're about fan acquisition, meaning a couple of years ago, there were about 100,000 people in the whole of the United States who cared about flat track. That's out of 300 million. That's not going to sustain a professional sport. So our strategy is all about getting new fans for the sport. I think everybody would agree with that. How do you do that? Well, I can tell you one way that you gain new customers for any kind of brand. Keep it simple, stupid. So what's the offer? Well, the offer is motorcycle racing. Oh, yeah, but isn't there a lot of motorcycle racing? I think there's other motorcycle racing. Why do I need yours? Well, ours is unique and different because of this, this, and this. So this is an invitation to fans to come and inspect the sport. Very confusing for those fans who are used to every single other pro auto sport. If they say, hold on a second, that guy, isn't he the Indian guy? No, no, he's the Harley guy now. Oh, but he's still got the same leathers on and the same helmet. What? Who, who is that guy? How do I know him? How do I relate to him? How do I cheer for him? I'm a Harley guy. He's riding an Indian now. Do you not see it's very, very confusing for new fans that there is a holy trinity of athlete, machine, and crew. They should be really the same every week if we want to build up a fan base. And I remember very clearly the first year I was involved in the sport that um, Jared Mees won uh, the, what was we called then the GNC One Championship. Um, he won it, and he rode uh, 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 an XR 750 Harley that was uh, sponsored by uh, Harley Davidson of Las Vegas. They were a big supporter of his, uh, along with all the other people who, who put Jared Mees on the grid. And we, by coincidence, had our finale round of the championship uh, in Las Vegas, the home of Harley Davidson of Las Vegas. So you can imagine how delighted, how delighted that team sponsor was when Jared won the championship racing a Honda. <laughs> right. We have to make a transition from an amateur sport or a pro-am sport into a professional one. Professional sports, the athlete and the team focus on getting the best out of a machine, the, the same machine, every week. That's how they get good at it. That's how they're not having machines held together with Band-Aids going out there because they've got two or three different brands and have they quite got the right parts for them because they've now got to have three sets of parts and they don't really understand the machine because they're chopping and changing between different weeks. That's an amateur sport. The pro sport, which we're building, is one where uh, riders are recognizable uh, week in, week out. Um, and that they have beautiful and very well-made and protective leathers and helmet. Because most of the time you see the rider, guess what? You don't see his face. You see his helmet and you see his leathers, you see his riding style and you see his machine. If he's swapping that machine every time he wants to go out there, how are you building up any following? You're not. That, that philosophy of the different machine is by us for us, which is great for an amateur sport and I would have no problem with it. But this is a sport that everybody who I spoke to in the first year, whether it was the board of directors of AMA Pro Racing or the fans in the grandstand or the athletes or, or the suppliers to it or the sponsors or the team owners, what they all told me was the sport was starving for cash. It's starving for cash because they have no fans. If you have no fans, you have no sponsors, you have no TV deal, you have nothing. So you need to get fans. You need to give them a product they can relate to. So that's the answer. So you build a brand for each particular rider, and, and that's what the, you expect them to see it on. I, I love that answer, and, and uh, I've never heard that answer before, so that was kind of the reason I wanted to ask you that question. So uh, you know, not only in the AFT Twins class, but in the AFT Singles class, there are a lot of talented riders. You, know, you have Corey Texter and Ryan Wells hopping back on the 450s. You have Shana Texter. You have our defending champ, Colby Carlisle. You have some up-and-comers in that class. I think the racing in the, in the singles class is going to be just as good as the twins class this year. Scotty, I am so delighted about the AFT singles class. It brings a smile to my face every time I think about it. It was so hard to convince some fairly entrenched views that we ought to have a dedicated production singles class. It was so hard to get a consensus on that. We did get a consensus, and we got some trust, I have to say from the paddock 
to let us go with this. The the counter arguments were no one wants to see motocross bikes uh, in in flat track. Number one or number two, if you're going to do it with 450 singles, make them framers. Or number three, you can't do that because the racing will be dull and strung out. I mean, the, the list of objections was enormous. I felt from the outset, I felt a gut instinct it was going to be awesome racing and it was going to feature up-and-coming stars of the future on affordable motorcycles with well-balanced um, performance. I agree. It's going to be you know very equal motorcycle, so it's going to depend on the rider, and, and yeah, it's going to be some really good racing in the singles class. I'm looking forward to that as well. I think, uh, I think you're going to see another season of epic racing in singles, and it was epic last year. I mean, with no disrespect to the twins, guys, my fe- my favorite three races of the year were all singles races, um, where you didn't know what was going to happen until the end, and even then, you were hot, you were absolutely uh, breathless at the result. I think we're going to see more of that. I think you, your uh, observation about uh, riders like Corey Texter and Ryan Wells deciding to make the switch back to singles tells you a lot. It tells you how competitive it's going to be. And I think you're also going to see a fairly major announcement come out very soon in time for the season that shows you how things are stepping up in singles. Something that's going to hit the airwaves in the next week. Man, you've got me so excited for these press releases. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. That's my job. Okay, good. I like it. So you, you mentioned that you know coming up with these rules and changes and, and all that happens in at in the headquarters of AFT, but there's also the advisory group. Uh, the advisory group this year, the writers are going to be Corey Texter, Jeffrey Carver, Sammy Halbert. Team members will be Mike Hacker and Bill Warner. So when when does the advisory group meet and what is their objective? I'm you know, I'm really looking forward to the advisory group this year. I kind of enjoy it uh, all the time. I know some people see it as a little bit of a chore to sit around a table and discuss and have minutes. And I mean, it doesn't sound very exciting. I get that. But um, but but I'm really looking forward to it this year. The big change we made from last year to this year in the advisory group is we took it down from nine members to five. Um, that wasn't so that we had to listen to less feedback from the paddock. It was actually so that we could listen to more. Um, we had uh, we had issues last year with some of the nine elected members maybe not taking attendance quite as seriously as one would hope. Um, so we didn't have a consistent uh, group of people coming every week, which makes development of ideas or development of arguments a bit more difficult. So we decided that this year we would have two riders and we would have uh, two team members, and as a fifth member, whoever was the person who got the next largest number of votes. Um, I've looked at who's been elected onto it. Uh, there's some serious guys there who have strong opinions about flat track on the basis of their experience and their passion. Um, the, the role they play is exactly as it says on the can. It's an advisory group. They advise us on issues that come up week to week, uh, on what we should do from a paddock perspective. Uh, sometimes we will introduce um, an idea into the advisory group on something we want to do next year or the year after, or even the year after that, as a temperature check. How would the paddock feel about this? Um, and it helps us not only to know what that reaction is, but also to develop the argument, because sometimes people just say no before you finish the sentence. You may have noticed that in life. Every now mm-hmm. and then people say no, and they haven't really thought it through. So having the advisory group is an opportunity to refine the argument, maybe modify the proposal, maybe come at it from a different direction. So so I love the advisory group. Uh, maybe that's my political dad background in there who was forever in uh, smoky uh, rooms uh, d- discussing the future of mankind. Um, I, I like it. And we are going to have the first advisory group meeting of the season next week here in Daytona uh, in the run up to the TT. And I think that we're planning a meeting probably every other round, although it's fluid because sometimes issues come up and you need to have a meeting when you hadn't um, anticipated it. Um, they're generally about an hour or two long. Uh, they're generally two hours long if Bill Werner speaks a lot and maybe an hour long normally. Um, but Bill has a whole lifetime worth of uh, with the experience and uh, he can, man, can he develop an argument. So, um 
So we have a frank and uh, uh, open discussion of views. We take what we've got, we come back to Daytona, we chew on the feedback we've got between Chris Carr, who runs competition, and, and myself, and uh, David McGrath is involved, who's our technical director, and Gene Crouch is involved, who's uh, responsible for our communications and a whole load of other things. So it's a, it's a very useful part of the, uh, of the season. That's awesome. I, I didn't know the ins and outs. I just knew that you guys met. I didn't know what the reason was or, or what was going on behind closed doors. So it's good to know what's happening. Uh, let's talk about 2018 just a little bit. I saw one of the most recent press releases is that NBCSN has a bigger and better deal. This is awesome. Um, I mean, it was a big it was a big deal to get a TV deal in the beginning. And, uh, you know, motorcycle racing fans know that not all TV deals are created equal. So just being able to be found on some super top secret channel somewhere that your local cable operator may or may not make available to you is of marginal importance. From day one, we absolutely wanted to be with a big, muscular broadcast partner. It's easier said than done. Um, But we managed to uh, strike a deal with the NBC uh, people for uh, for airing on NBCSN last year. Um, they uh, didn't know much about our sport, but they liked our energy uh, and they liked the excitement in flat track racing. So they gave us a Thursday evening slot uh, and they advised us as well that it was best to run all 18 rounds uh, in a short space of time, you know, once a week so that fans could get a chance uh, uh, to put it into their schedule. What that meant was that the first race that we aired was about three months after it actually took place. Um, so that was a challenge for us. And we reviewed that with NBC in the off season. And we came to uh, a conclusion about two things. Firstly, NBC said that we had overperformed dramatically with the ratings, way above what they had expected. Maybe their expectations were low. And that they felt that the whole show would really benefit from being moved from a Thursday evening, you know, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Uh, Pacific, into primetime weekend. Uh, and that was very exciting for us. So now we're going to be on weekends, Saturday and Sunday afternoons, either in the lead up to a big live sporting event or right after a big live sporting event. So we're going to get some bleed of audience from uh, shows that have a bigger uh, following than we do at the moment. Um, so we're probably going to double maybe even treble ratings. If we do that, um, we're going to reach America. So the first thing was um, uh, was getting to weekend. And the second thing was, and we'd always planned this from the beginning, was that once we had the momentum of a, an audience following us, we needed to cut the, the gap between the live race and the tape showing. So we've cut that uh, in most cases to a week now. So we can go out. We can go out with the show on NBCSN while the race is still hot in people's minds. And so this is a, a you know, this is a progression. And one day we may have live races, but we've got to get there. Um, so we've gone from the Thursday evening now to the weekends, and one week tape delay uh, means that the the race will still be fresh and relevant for people. So. We're super excited, Scotty, about this for this year. The, the NBC thing has been a complete door opener for us. It's been a, a big door opener for, for me, too. Watching you know watching the sport on TV is is awesome. I don't get the chance to see it on FansChoice.tv because I'm in it. But yeah, going, yeah. Going, back, going back and watching it on TV has been pretty cool to, to see things from a different point of view, and, and I certainly enjoyed it. So uh, you teased us a whole lot about uh, 2018, and I'm looking forward to the upcoming season, too. Is there anything else you can tease us a little bit more or that you can tell us about 2018? Boy, there's, there's, there's so much. Um, there really is. Okay, so you're going to see a big announcement uh, in the next week about a partnership between a great athlete and a great OEM. Uh, you're going to see that very soon, and that is going to be a big storyline for the season. You're going to see some other storylines develop before too long uh, that concern 2019 even. But in the meantime... I can tell you what you're going to see week in, week out is awesome racing. You're going to see awesome racing. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of racers in the off season. Man, they are leaner and fitter and more focused than at any times in their careers. 
all of them. So the standard is going to go up. And, you know, every now and then I see people moaning on social media about how it's not like the good old days or how ride accounts are small or, you know, anything, anything that people can hook up to. Ride account is not going to be the deliverer of your good experience. Quality is. You want to see quality racing. If 400 riders turn up, there's still only going to be 18 in the main event. Yeah, you want 18 fully focused, totally professional athletes who are on well-prepared modern machinery. That's what the fan wants to see. We're going to deliver more of that this year than at any time in the history of flat track. I certainly agree with that. And I, I like the uh, the 18 of the best riders in the world make the main. And that and that's certainly true. We have riders coming from all over, uh, all over the globe just to race with us. And I think that says a lot for our sport. And you're going to see more this year. I, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I certainly appreciate the time, and I've, I've I've loved listening to your answers. I've got a couple more. Actually, I got one more question. This comes from my my grandma, and everybody calls her Graham, and that's Kathy Dubler, and she wanted to say you've done an awesome job bringing back flat track racing, and she's been going to the races for over 63 years, and she said she loves what you're doing. But she had one question. She said, why don't you give those guys just a little bit more time on the starting line, like if their bike stalls? So that's her That's her question. I, I honestly want to know the answer, too. Like, the only one that comes to mind is uh, Wyatt Anderson, I believe, in Charlotte last year. He stalled on the line, uh, gave him just a few times to kick the bike, and then we went out. We, went, we started the race without him. So I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this one, but Graham wants to know. I think Graham poses a very good question. Um, and I, and, and I understand completely that what we want to do is we want to make the show better for everybody, right? We want to make the show better for the athletes, for the teams that support them, for the fans, uh, for everybody. We are making a transition at the moment. And hopefully the transition is reasonably invisible. But we're making a transition from a sport that was pro-am, uh, was more am than pro into the future and the future is a professional sport so think about think about the quality and the professionalism of supercross or think about moto gp or world superbike these are the benchmarks for me on what you look like when you've grown up so they all are broadcast live on tv live tv is a whole different world live tv is is when the when the flag goes the race starts it's as simple as that. And so stalling on the line, it's not something you see happen very often in professional motorsports for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and we've got to look at how we're building um, uh, our product collectively. And that includes all the athletes. So um, we have had to deal with the two-minute rule, which was people stalling on the line, and they've taken the starter motor out of the bike to save weight, which means that now it's not easy to start it. That's not good for the fans. Or they've taken the, uh, they've taken the, uh, the water pump out or several, in, uh, several components out of the cooling system, uh, and then the bike overheats. None of these things are good for building the show. None of these things are professional. These are, these are band-aids that you apply when money is tight and, uh, and no one's watching. But people are watching now. So we've got to start running races on time. We've got to get ahead of track preparation so that we have good quality tracks. And we've got to be able to do that when no one's looking instead of holding up the show. We've got to be able to deal with red flags better. Yeah, they, the, 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 gap, the gaps between a red flag going out and the race starting has got to get shorter and shorter. Because we're, we're now uh, beholden to a new paymaster. Uh, and we'll be more so in the future. We're beholden to television. Um, and, and television requires that you package your product for the convenience of the audience. And I, I've been involved in flat track for three years now. And packaging anything for the convenience of the audience was not that high on the agenda. Uh, it's becoming more so. And it's painful in the transition. Some things that you rely on, you say, yeah, that poor kid on the line. Yes, I agree. But. It's the show is by the athletes for the audience. And so there are going to be some changes. Some of them are going to be universally accepted in, immediately. Some of them, people are going to be shaking their heads and saying, why are we doing that? Because they don't see the end game. And there are going to be other changes that people don't agree with <laughs> for the rest of their lives. That's, that's, that's 
progress and that's change. It, you're not able to deliver everything for everybody all the time, but you've got to keep the show on the road and you've got to have a vision for the future. And, and so I would answer, that was a very long answer, I appreciate that, but it was a very interesting question. And it's the kind of thing I wrestle with day in, day out, is how do we get it slicker? How do we get it quicker? How do we get it better packaged? Uh, how do we uh, uh, how do we serve audiences? Because the competition for American flat track now for uh, for the attention of audiences and sponsors and and indeed riders, you know, there's been a there's been a um, brain drain from American flat track and its forefathers for 40 years into road racing and into motocross and supercross. I want that talent in my series. I want the best riders in the world competing in American flat track to big audiences in the grandstand and huge audiences on TV. That's what I want. And we need to make some changes to do that. And if that means that we need to stop having two minute uh, rules, which um, slowed the show down and perhaps were abused every now and then, uh, if we need to quicken things for red flags because, uh, because uh, certain riders felt that if they went down, uh, they could get back and restart the race. I mean, I, I'm very lucky. I have a seven-time flat track champion in an office 10 feet away from me. <laughs> so Chris will sit there and say, you know why they're doing that, don't you? <laughs> Which is invaluable. So, yes. So to Graham's question, um, could we be giving the riders more time because they stall the bikes? I guess we could. But maybe they want to do that on Sunday. Um, because on Saturday night, we got a big show uh, to put on for America. Michael, on behalf of all the Flat Track fans, thank you for what you've done so far these past uh, couple years. Uh, I love the way that, you know, where the sport's going, and I certainly appreciate the time to talk to you today. I could talk to you for a couple more hours, but I believe we'll cut it down today, and uh, I'll see you in Daytona here real soon. Looking forward to it. Scotty, safe travels. See you next week. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Always good to hear from our friends at AFT. Once again, I want to thank Michael Locke for his time and willingness to answer the tough questions. I love what he's done for our sport, and I look forward to seeing what he has in store for 2018 and beyond. Hopefully, we can have him on again later this season. And now, let's go racing! Racing!